Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. For many businesses, success comes in unexpected ways. Tom's, for example, grew into a $600 million company by giving away 35 million pair of shoes. Patagonia's profits climbed year after year, even as it funnels heavy investments into sustainability. And it's just not millennials that are rewarding companies with causes. In every age group, people commit to brands that show good citizenship, from CVS destocking cigarettes to Chipotle's ethical sourcing. People want to see fair employment practices, social responsibility, and charitable giving, and they quickly call out negligence. By actively linking great brands with higher purposes, companies capture both markets and hearts. And today on our show, we are joined by someone who literally wrote the book on this topic. For more than 25 years, Ann Barr Thompson has counseled families and leaders across sectors, including companies, foundations, and nonprofits, to connect more deeply with purpose and values, identify a social mission, crystallize operating principles, and collaborate with like-minded partners. Ann is the author of Do Good. Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit, and has been named a Trust Across America 2018 Top Thought Leader in Trust. Anne pioneered the model of brand citizenship and developed the first five-step me-to-we continuum that guides organizations to solve people's individual me problems and their we concerns about society, the economy, and the planet. Currently, she's the founder of 164th, a strategic and creative advisory firm, and has provided strategic guidance to many global and local nonprofits and humanitarian agencies, including UNICEF, Save the Children International, and the American Red Cross. Anne's authored articles for numerous publications like The Economist, HBR.com, and Bloomberg News. She holds an MBA from the Darden Graduate School at the University of Virginia and has been an adjunct professor at New York University's Stern School of Business's London campus. Welcome, Anne. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So speaking of Anne, on today's episode, I am joined by my partner in the Slater Trainer Group at UBS, Anne Trainer. So if you're keeping score at home, we have two Anne's, but our guest spells it with an E at the end. So we're all Seth. Okay. So before we get into do good, I'd love to hear you talk about your own personal backstory that has kind of led you to, as you call it, this new business ethos you call brand citizenship. So a little bit more about your background that kind Uh, of led you here. So my background is varied, but there is a through line. I started out my life way back when in advertising, and actually many people don't even know that. Mm -hmm. Then got my MBA, worked briefly in product management, both in consumer goods, but also in very heavy B2B business management and banking, both cash management, middle market at what's now J.P. Morgan Chase was Chemical Bank, Mm -hmm. and retirement services and investment management at Bankers Trust, which is now Deutsche Bank. So that's a secret part of my career most people don't know about. I emerged subsequent to that during the heyday, or when branding was moving into its heyday as a corporate strategic tool, 
at Interbrand and managed and integrated the consulting businesses, brand valuation, research, strategy, and naming. So when you were growing up, let's go back a little bit before um, the college (laughs) years, how important was the, the thought of doing good? Well, I grew up in a household where my parents, well, my mother especially was always volunteering. My father worked a lot, but he talked about doing good. And my parents always said, no matter how little you have in life, you always have something you can give others. My mother actually ran a uh, printing machine in our garage for a woman's organization for the newsletter. Hmm. Wasn't very radical, but it still was a women's organization helping. So I was always brought up that way with a sense of volunteerism, with a sense of helping your neighbor, and a sense of giving. It was ingrained in in my childhood. Not surprised. So one of the things we like to do on the show is when we throw terms out there, let our guests explain it. So what do you mean by brand citizenship? So that's an interesting thing because actually the term popped up in my head as a result of research I was conducting in 2011. And it just came there and it was like brand valuation, having been an inner brand. And to me, it was this concept that was really important and really active. If you think about a brand as the human face of a business, so we have the human side of a business, and then you think about citizenship as being an active participant in society, brand citizenship is the notion that businesses do have a human face and should be active participants in society. And if you think of even some legal actions that talk about businesses as individuals and things, it actually goes in line with some legal trends of how people were viewing businesses and their sense of responsibility. Hmm. Well, so along those same lines as that question, again, the book is called Do Good, Yes, the first part of the book. So... What do you mean by that? I mean, on one hand, it's it can be seen as kind of obvious, but in this context specifically. So it's funny because Do Good was the working title of my proposal to publishers, and I never thought it would stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when the publishers came back and wanted to keep it as the title, I sort of resisted it a little bit. But at the end of the day, when you're with a publisher, you have to, in my mind, you have to save a lot of your resisting to actually the integrity Right. and quality of what's inside the book. So I said, fine, go ahead, keep it. But since then, I've thought a lot about it because you have to come to terms with the title of your book. And in reality, Do Good is a Call to Action, which is why I put it out there originally as the proposal title. It's a call to action to step up and behave in a manner that adds, not takes away. And whilst you could say that profit is additive because so much of society is based on economics, profit at the price of other things, at the price of human capital, at the price of the environment, at the price of maintaining society and sustaining our planet for the long term is not a good thing. (laughs) So the idea is do good on multiple levels, and it's a call to action to step up. Mm-hmm. What do you think's changed from, I don't know, let's say a decade ago that drives the thesis of your book that consumers want brands to show good citizenship, fair employment practices, social responsibility? Do you think it's the growth of millennials in the workplace that clearly have a very different mindset from our generation? So I think millennials have a different mindset, but actually, let me back up first. Sure. So, The notion for the book actually emerged almost a decade ago, at the end of 2011, when I was conducting research. I think what's changed over time is society has caught up to what was under the surface, what people were feeling and seeing, and things have have become more visible rather than underneath the surface, underneath the iceberg, so to speak, as you might say. 
At the end of 2011, people told us in research in the U.S. and the U.K. that they wanted business to step in and reform society. So it was there a decade ago. And I will answer your question on millennials. That's okay. No, no, um, what The reason I jump back to the research actually has to do with that because at the time, the very first study was we did, I had returned to the U.S. after a decade in the U.K. and was launching my business in the U.S. And we wanted five trends for 2012 to crystallize, to go talk to people about. Mm -hmm. um, we had been running an informal study with millennials and other people, and we actually formalized it this year in the U.S. and the U.K. And one of the questions we actually asked had to do with which career do you think would be best for people entering the workforce in 2012? And there really wasn't a significant difference between millennials and baby boomers in the terms of entering into a nonprofit, an NGO, versus a corporate career. Where the difference was, was more millennials at that time, and over the three to five years of doing the study, it, it swung back and forth year to year. Millennials felt being an entrepreneur was a better career than going into a corporate career. So right. a lot of it has to do with which way they saw their life being controlled the best. When we actually asked people what they would do with free time if money wasn't an object— Millennials had a lot of personal things. Some people were going to do good and volunteer, but actually where we saw a lot of that had more to do with some baby boomers and legacy. Mm. So there, there's a pull, and we're all paradoxical. So every generation has a paradoxical, a, a thing that's not quite tied with how they view doing good right. versus how they view benefiting themselves. And I think the one thing that we found with millennials and why corporations are being called to task by millennials and started to around that time of 2012, 2013, is they didn't want to sacrifice. They wanted someone else to help do it for them. So they want the people they work for to ensure that they're working in a place that has purpose. And a lot of what had the notion of corporate purpose or individual purpose come to the surface after the first decade of the new millennium, so, you know, 2010 to 2015, had to do with millennial turnover in the workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, according to Gallup, I think in 2016, it was costing over $30 billion to corporations with millennial turnover. They wanted to work in a company that actually made them feel better about themselves. Well, on average, something like five or you know, kids in their 20s were changing jobs four or five times, I think, yes, exactly. during that period, right? So that was the thing that actually initially brought this notion of what is being a responsible business, what is embracing purpose to the surface. Since then, there's been so many things that have brought it on. And what I should say in our study is people said they wanted business to step in and reform society at the end of 2011. They didn't believe government could do it. So the end of 2011 was when people were saying that we were over the downturn from the, the Great Recession and that things were supposed to be feeling better. Hmm. It was in the U.S. an election year. In the U.K., they were starting austerity measures right. by the conservative party. And people were being told they were supposed to be feeling better, but they weren't. So they said, I can't trust politicians anymore. Businesses know how to go fix things. We want business to step in and reform society. So that's where the underpinnings of things were. And world events, too. Right? Yes, I mean, well, you think that's about, what I was going to say. Yeah, the, yes. the millennials, uh, I mean, this is something talk a lot about with my, my own millennial, is, you know, he was hit with two big world events. Exactly. One, 9-11, while he was in fifth or sixth grade, and then the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009 with a father working at, at the time at Citigroup. So... 
saw firsthand what was going on in this world. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a line of demarcation in the same way there's a line of demarcation in a lot of baby boomer attitudes between early boomers and late boomers. There's a line of demarcation in attitudes between early millennials and late millennials. Mm-hmm. So we, you see how those things do. But And so since then, you talk about the past 10 years, what's happened? Well, we've had global leaders acknowledge, and even before this year's UNGA, or last year's 2019's UNGA, where, where Greta Thunberg stepped up and actually transformed how people think of climate crisis. Even before that, businesses were starting to take on the SDGs because they signed the Global Compact. So there was a notion of that, although it was within certain departments in a business and not everyone was as aware. I often go speak about my book at business schools. And one of the questions we would ask in the beginning, and actually still even up to two years ago, with students who are interested in sustainability, in social enterprise, we would ask to give three people a book as a prize. What are the SDGs? Mm. And even students who were into that concept didn't, didn't know, know what the SDGs were. Did any were. of the students bring up Milton Friedman? The, oh, well, uh, no. The, actually, that was the one thing that was starting to fade a little bit. I come from the era of the big Milton Friedman. Right. right. So exactly. just for, for yeah. our listeners, so great economist. Everyone knows that. But he he argued that a company has no social responsibility to the public or society Right. And that actually a company spending money or a business spending money for social causes is spending someone else's money and that they really shouldn't be doing that. So you're kind of saying the exact opposite, that people in 2011 with your research, they have more faith in business doing this than the government. So is it time to... Barry Milton's theory is that <laughs> well, I think I think Milton's free theory got taken to the extreme over time in the era of corporate rating and things of that nature. A lot of people believed until recently when the Business Roundtable in the U.S., the British Academy in the U.K., and some other organizations have said that the purpose of a business is not solely to create value for shareholders, but to create value for all stakeholders. But prior to that, a lot of people actually thought that Milton Friedman's philosophy was law, when actually it wasn't. It comes from something Mm -hmm. called the Revlon moment, which had to do with directors of an organization, so the executives, benefiting during a sale over shareholders. So there's been a lot of butchering of Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman, and I'm not sure Milton Friedman envisioned true short-termism, which his -hmm. philosophy started evolving into when he he said it. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I suspect he might not have. A lot of the article he wrote, I believe it was in 1971 in the New York Times, stemmed from responding to a lot of lawsuits and things that were going on in social responsibility arena mm-hmm. with corporations. And it was to say that we shouldn't be giving all this up. Shareholders also have to benefit. And I'm not trying to defend Milton Friedman because chapter two in my book is all about the reframe value creation. And in many ways, as I was writing that chapter, I kept envisioning a play that would pit Milton Friedman against Peter Drucker. <laughs> and for me, Peter Drucker would be the winner of that. Yeah. So Third but- act would be Greta. Maybe. Maybe we bring her on at the third act for the finale. (laughs) (laughs) Showstopper. That would be the showstopper. So let's get into this because I really, this is is so critical. So you've developed this five-step model and you articulate this beautifully in, in your book. Quickly, folks, it's trust, enrichment, responsibility, community, and contribution. And recently, Ann and I interviewed the chairman of JetBlue, Joel Peterson, who's written a really terrific book on the 10 laws of trust. And and that 
you know, became just so critical. So maybe let's go through one, each one individually. Maybe you have some specific stories on, Mm -hmm. on how they all fit in. So I would just want to correct one thing. I didn't develop these five steps. Okay. <laughs> these five steps emerged actually from the research. So from the grassroots up, this is what people told us, and this is how the data actually started aggregating, clustering, and modeling. So it's an important thing because I started talking about this during an era when purpose was coming into vogue, and people just assumed I sat there and wanted my own purpose model. But actually, that wasn't the intent. When people told us that they wanted business to step in and reform society. I was like, what's going on here? And actually the brands they named as the number one, and I'm not avoiding your question. No, no, five no, steps. no, no, I'll come no, back no, to no. that. We'll but the there. brands that they named as the number one, number two, number three, good corporate citizens were surprising. They all had a me proposition. So Apple was the number one and it was during the Foxconn scandal. And when you ask people, why are you naming Apple the number one good corporate citizen? Apple transformed the way I communicate with people across the globe. It's brought joy into my life by bringing me music 24-7. There was a whole me proposition. So a whole sense of how my life is lived is part of good corporate citizenship, which was shocking to me, shocking to my team. And so what we did over the next three to five years, depending upon how you slice or dice it, was work to deconstruct brand leadership from good citizenship and from favorite brands as a proxy for loyalty. And from that, those five steps emerged from the grassroots based on what people told us in a series of attributes we clustered. So trust is interesting because JetBlue has 10 principles of trust. I found five principles of trust. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was really important with identifying trust as the starting point to be a good citizen, to be a responsible business, was that having come from a loyalty background many years ago, Trust in loyalty and reputation management was the end game. What we learned in today's world was trust was the starting point. Mm-hmm. And so the five, the five elements of trust were clarity, so people know where you're coming from so they can benchmark you against something. Reliability, deliver every time. Sincerity, speaking from the heart. And we, we use the word authenticity a lot in today's world. And what I learned In my research, and actually it started emerging probably in 2006 when I started talking to millennials for clients, was that authenticity in today's world is curated at best and contrived on a more average day. Social media has taught everybody to do that. Well, yeah, how how, with a typical millennial, their BS meter for some is is, is huge. And for some, you know, they buy everything that they see on Instagram and every Instagram influencer, you know, somehow something explains the Kardashian Phenomenon. If it aligns with your principles (laughs) and reflects your values, then a curated story or contrived story works for them. And we saw that in brands that fell into step two, and I can talk about that in a minute. But sincerity, we learned, is more important than authenticity. Sincerity is speaking from the heart. And you feel when people are speaking from the heart. You feel when a business leader is speaking from the heart rather than putting his hands up and saying, or her hands up and saying, mea culpa. Mm -hmm. So sincerity, so clarity, reliability, sincerity, give to give, not to get. Mm -hmm. So loyalty programs tend to be to get. They're really not about giving freely. And people want businesses, they want brands to give them things because of they are loyal, not just give them to cross-sell. What would be a good example of sincerity that you've seen of well, sincerity? in the research? Yeah. I think the way certain leaders respond to crises and how they step up and, and own it, mm-hmm. you feel it if it's real or not. Right. 
in them. I have to be careful about saying things I know too much about and that they might take my child away from me That's because of an NDA. <laughs> so I'll just leave it as that. That's but, fine. But That's you, fine. you I know, get the point. You, yeah. you feel, yeah. and, and it, politicians are a big place you can see sincerity. And what right. was interesting, actually, when we talked about good corporate citizens in our studies, politicians would often be named as good or bad. Hmm. And we said corporate, and we would explain what corporate citizenship was from a technical standpoint, and still people put hmm. politicians into that notion, hmm. which was fascinating. So you have, uh, if I go back to what builds trust, clarity, reliability, sincerity, give to give, not only to get, and then active listening. The notion that you have a lot of my data and information, but again, you're only using it to cross-sell not to better my life. And that's related very strongly to give to give, not to get. And what that leads you into are brands that fall into step two, which are brands that enrich our lives. They make us feel happier. They inspire our every days. And when you think about that as the second step of brand citizenship, you understand how Apple was mm -hmm. named as the number one good brand. Other brands that fell into that, that people told us about, Mrs. Myers. And it was interesting because during the course of writing my book, my editor said to me at one point, you're too in love with these brands. Mm. And I explained to her that the brands I chose were not brands I chose. They were brands that came up in the research and out of 250 that I started with withered down because their stories actually made you fall in love or because they were really easy to talk to and interview and a variety of things of that nature. And Mrs. Myers was one of those brands that actually turned her around to start seeing it. She had a housekeeper who'd been coming to her home for many years, and she never noticed that she had Mrs. Myers in her little carry bag until she started editing the book. And she called me up one day, and she said, you know, my housekeeper has never been anywhere but Rio or here. Mm -hmm. And that's been her life. And when I saw Mrs. Myers on the counter, I asked her, what do you think of that brand? Why are you using it? And she said to me that because it makes her feel like she's traveling to a French lavender field when she uses it. And that's the type of comments we heard from people in our study. Hmm. Mrs. Myers makes cleaning fun. It makes it more pleasant. It makes it enjoyable. Another brand that came up under enrichment is Ikea, which we actually thought would come up under responsibility, but people classified Ikea as a brand of enrichment because Ikea's whole notion is how to enrich your home. Right. And everything they do has to do with that. And their founder wanted to bring what wasn't accessible to the average person in their home to their homes. Right. And that drives everything. And then in the that meatballs organization. too, of course. Yes, yeah. the meatballs yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. But they border, and they're such a great brand to sort of transition between enrichment and responsibility because IKEA is so responsible. And the thing that amazes me about IKEA is a really strong lesson that came from the research on what is good brand citizenship is that you're not going to get it right every time, but you have to step on the pathway and you have to be willing to take risks and move forward each time and raise the bar for yourself as your customers raise the bar for you. And IKEA has been battered in the media for so many things so many times, and each time they take a lesson and they change. And the story that I tell in the book, which to me is really interesting, has to do with glue and particle board. Particle board for furniture had formaldehyde glue in it. And it wasn't just Ikea's, it was everybody's. Mm -hmm. And they were becoming the face of it in Germany and in the Scandinavian countries. Right. And so they went out to try to find an alternate way to make particle board and no glue existed. So they found German chemical companies and worked with them to change the glue. 
So they changed the whole industry and how particle board was done. That's responsible. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, very. And they have a museum in their hometown in Sweden that actually talks about their mistakes as much as their successes, which really shows That's, you the ethos yeah. of, of the company. And clearly they're working on creating a fully circular business and things of that nature. So then you go to responsibility and responsibility is step three. And that's the original, holds much of the original ideas of what good corporate citizenship is. But what we learned, and I haven't done a study for three years. So if you have any listeners who want to fund one, I'd love to go do this and play with it. Because the Operators original, are standing by now. <laughs> the original studies I funded myself. But when we were doing the research up until about three years ago, people told us that unless you treat your employees well and fairly first... We could care, not we could care less. We want you to do good for the environment, but we're not going to give you credit for what you do in your supply chain, for what you do in sustainability and things of that nature, unless we know you're treating employees, which does extend to your vendors, especially in the fashion industry, unless you're treating them well and fairly. People first was the number one message that came out of responsibility. I think today, given the climate crisis, you might see a slight shift in that. Not because of sacrificing people, but unless we take care of the climate, businesses won't be around and none of us will be around. So the sense of urgency may shift that notion. The other thing that came up in the beginning was what's acceptable to take a stand on as a business. Right. And and a lot of it had to do in the beginning with civil liberties. And over time, we've seen that shift to other things, gun control. We've even seen businesses step into some political affairs and, and international relations and various things. But the thing that's most important, if you take a stand, it better be in alignment with everything you do inside your house. Mm. I was really surprised that no company that stood up for gun control No one revealed that any of these companies may have had guns as an investment in their pension plans, because I would suspect if you dug deep, at at least one of those companies would have. And in today's world, where we live in glass houses and corporations have to be really careful, you need to make sure your house is in order. That was one of the questions, actually, that we were going to ask about, which is that fine line between supporting causes and taking a political position and how companies walk that line to make sure they're doing one and not the other. Because you can isolate your clients or even your your employees, Mm -hmm. you know, all of your stakeholders, as you said before, especially in today's, you know, hyper-partisan, if you will, climate. Well, and I think that has been shifting significantly over time. And I think ideology is becoming a new form of segmentation. And I'm not sure yet how far companies are being given permission to go. And I think it has to do with your role in society, your role in creating the economy. And how far you go has to do with who your CEO is, what your business is about. And I think it's variable still, and the line keeps shifting. And I find it's shifting more and more to be more and more permissive. And I've seen in certain business schools, some professors have been identifying that within certain postal codes, within certain zip codes, you find people buy certain product, certain brands because of partisanship. And they're starting to see some potential divides between Democratic arenas and Republican arenas on the types of products they align with. So ideology, if you think about how segmentation evolved, you went from demographics to psychographics. Psychographics went on steroids into lifestyle and aspirations. Ideology just sort of seem like it may be the next step, but you do have to be careful 
and do have to accept you may win some, but you may lose some. So responsibility, trust enrichment responsibility. Step four is community and actually goes very much. It's a perfect question to segue into that because community is all about connecting people through shared values. And it's not just through social media. It's through the initiatives you do with your employees. Clearly, diversity and inclusion could be thought of as responsibility, but inclusion, which is moving more and more into belongingness, which is even a heightened sense, just because you're included doesn't mean we make you feel like you belong. That's very much step four community. So it's within your employees, bringing them on board, as well as between employees and your customers and your clients and your suppliers. So how do you create communities of shared values? And you even think of business-to-business communities. Forest Stewardship Council is someone I, I highlight in the book, and they bring together competitors who share values on ensuring that we maintain forests and that that paper and wood is sourced ethically. Then you go, and that's actually, again, a nice con- a segue into contribution, which is step five. And contribution is through my association with you. Make me feel bigger than I am. So you're doing good efforts because I say I buy you, because I say I work for you. Oh, right. mm-hmm. You're making me feel better. And it's very easy to see how social enterprises fall into that. Lush is an example of a brand that's not a social enterprise, but actually has the character of a social enterprise. It's a British cosmetics brand that's now globally, they have some here in the U.S. And their founders actually had a lot to do with some of the underpinnings of the body shop and their animal testing and things because their founders actually originally created products that the body shop used. Body shop bought all the rights to those products and suddenly they didn't have a business anymore. They came from hair salons and they they were on a mission and they went back and they just kept going and going and eventually they reemerged with Lush. And one of the founders is very much into fighting for animal rights, goes to China for human rights, all sorts of things. So Lush has that built into their brand, even though they're not a social enterprise. And the story I love to tell, especially in the U.S., because people tend to blush even in business schools, is they're about naked packaging. So they don't package their soaps. And they had an initiative where everyone at noon who worked in their shops stepped out in their pinafores only, their aprons, nothing else, That was the only thing they were wearing to promote naked packaging. So their employees really believe in what they do. Another brand, which is even less socially oriented that I talk about in the book. It's even better than Jeans Day in our office. (laughs) I thought that was fun. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think you'd have to be a bit bold and brave (laughs) to walk into UBS with just a pinafore on. I don't really want Um, anyone doing that. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Kanko Coffee, which is owned by Mandela's, which is Mm -hmm. a a giant consumer goods Mm -hmm. company, they have an initiative called Coffee and Gangs. And what they do is they give scholarships to teenagers in Honduras, a small number, but every year they give them to become a coffee farmer because teenagers, as you may know, in Honduras face a difficult life. And Honduras each year is ranked either number one or number two. It varies year to year as the largest number of deaths and gun crime and things of that nature across the globe. So Honduran teenagers typically have a choice, join a gang, leave the country, or get killed. And what Kenko does is give them a fourth option, become a coffee grower. And imagine if you take the notion of contribution and community, and Kenko brought together a lot of different coffee brands, and they 
widen their NGO pool to execute this program, you could potentially change a continent. You could change Central America, you could change South America by doing some larger initiative and bringing businesses who all believe in this together. So that's how the five steps work. And when they first started emerging, I thought brands had to end up strategically thought of as a brand of contribution to be considered a good citizen, a good brand citizen. And what we learned throughout the course of the research is your business proposition, and this is where I have a slightly different definition of purpose than a lot of other people, purpose to me is why your business exists at the highest reason. It has to tie to what your business is about. It also, however, has to be broad enough to encompass the social mission. But purpose isn't only about your social mission. You're a for-profit business. So what we learned is if you have a single purpose that unifies you across this me to we continuum, and me being steps one and two, trust and enrichment, three being the pivot point, and community contribution being the we side. If you have a purpose that allows you to deliver across all these five steps, you strategically can be a brand that builds trust, but still be thought of as a good citizen because you're embracing the steps of contribution community in a lot of your activities. Well, that's great. Really just excellent analysis of all five. So if there was a Mount Rushmore of CEOs or even companies that you found through your research that absolutely fit your do-good model, I know you've mentioned a few of embracing citizenship to fuel purpose and profit, anyone specifically would be on that Mount Rushmore if we're, if we're looking back, you know, we can look back 100 years as well as, you know, looking forward 25 years. So this is where I play politician and deflect. Okay. Because my actual goal in talking about this is not to make businesses feel like they have to be perfect. And I think when you put up the real case studies, when you put up the Patagonias in front of another business, it becomes overwhelming. How do we become that? Mm -hmm. I I don't know how we do that. We're here and they're all the way over there. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have these amazing case studies and examples to use as exemplars, but every business can wake up one day and say, I'm going to step on this pathway of doing good, of becoming sustainable, of having ethos of being socially responsibility, and frankly, every business should. How you start with that is going to have to be true to what your business is about, and you have to be willing, like Ikea, to make mistakes. So when you start talking about the Mount Rushmore, it puts some CEOs off. And what I learned, actually, in doing the research for my book is I had a lot of responses from Fortune 250 CEOs or someone in the Mm C-suite when I requested to do interviews. And there was a lot of consistency of, I don't want you to say I'm good because the activists are going to come in here and find out what we're not doing well. Mm. And that's, that's really hard. We have to start being able to work with businesses in partnership and give them credit. Yes, call out people when they're bad. I'm not saying ignore that or glaze over that. But, you know, the fact that activists were on Levi's case, Levi's, who really has been working for water for so many years for energy usage, and they were, were taking a brand that's a good brand and really cares and genuinely cares, sincerely cares, and lambasting them for their energy usage. What they didn't even do was look in their sustainability plan and discover actually they had a pretty ambitious plan to reduce energy. So this is the challenge businesses face. Mm -hmm. And you have to be careful about claiming doing good because people will come and and find you out. But if we start giving businesses credit, I want to know as someone who buys 
goods and services, as someone who partners with other businesses, I want to know what they're doing. Don't we all want to be able to buy from people who share our values? So there's no reason not to make it more transparent, but we also have to make sure to give people credit who are working hard to change and work with them. Because we as people who buy products and services, and I try to avoid the word consumer because it makes us feel like we're not one of them, but we as people who buy products and services, we have to change our behavior too. Yes, the fashion industry might keep putting out clothes, but maybe you should buy one or two things less each season. So we have to change our behaviors as much as we're expecting business to change behavior. It's a bit of a curve, curveball, but just dawned on me. Celebrities. Celebrities today are a big part of brand citizenship and are claiming to do good. And some may be. What's your general view there without, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think of Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm not saying good or bad, but, you know, in her goop business, for example. Yeah, I've heard a lot about goop and stuff mm-hmm. recently. And yeah. I don't know enough. I have mixed emotion about the celebrity thing. Again, if it's true to who you are. And I guess maybe the things people criticize Gwyneth about is she's using her beliefs to actually earn money. But I guess that's sort of what I'm saying is okay. So it's a hard thing for me to comment on. Ronald Reagan did it to sell cigarettes, right? It's a hard thing for me to comment on. I think companies using celebrities as a surrogate for their own behavior is where I would say I'm not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. But if you align with someone to who shares your message and is a way to get people to change their behavior and become aware of an issue. Sure. That's great. But what's sincere, what's bandwagons, you know, hopping on to increase my number of followers. I don't know. And I probably view that in the way an average person does too. You know, some of it I really believe in and others I'm like, really? (laughs) So, So you talk about the fact, obviously businesses, they do need to make a profit. And they're put in this position of uh, marrying these two sides, right? Doing good, but you're here for profit. Another area we could touch upon is big data, AI. Mm-hmm. These are big issues today and and probably more along the lines of misuse of that data, mm-hmm. right? But like you said, as a consumer, you want more from these companies, from these businesses. And they might need to use some of that type of technology to do good whether it's on the me side or the we side of the continuum, right? So any thought on that? Did you come across any of those issues? It's interesting because I actually modeled big data before it was called that. Mm. I actually modeled Nielsen and IRI scanning data Mm -hmm. back in the mid-90s to predict things for people like Quaker Oats, uh, Rice-A-Roni, DiGiorno pasta. So I actually have personally lived and and experienced what you can do with that information. But this was not on that granule level of individuals. Yes, there were individual rows of individual data, but it wasn't getting down to how then I I talk to you. Mm -hmm. I think that usage of big data personally, I want everyone everywhere to ask me. I don't like the fact that I hit do not track and I know I'm being tracked. I look up a little black dress, and everywhere I go for the next two months, little black dresses you pop You say the up. words little yeah. black dress. You yeah. don't even have to <laughs> yes, look yes, it up. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the it's other thing. It's going to happen now my, on your my, phone. My son, yeah. my son actually is a data scientist and into this field, and he's sort of like, you know, 
mom, there's no reason to put that little piece of tape anymore on. I even put it on my phone. Mm-hmm. I still have it we on my computer because <laughs> yeah. I don't take pictures as much as other people on my phone. So it was easy to keep on it. But the new iPhone, it's hard to actually have it on there. But he's like, they're listening to you. Right. Alexa <laughs> and, and Siri. Are, yeah. And I, uh, I, I don't use Siri. Right. I don't use Alexa. Me neither. But my, yep. they're still somehow exactly, here. Yep. They it's know all everything. turned off. Exactly. It's making it too easy. You have a conversation. Yeah. Right. And the first, you put one letter in search and the first word that pops up, yeah. whether that's what you're looking to search or not is the first word that pops up and Google tracks you. I mean, you have to, this is just part of it, but I really wish when I hit do not track, it would really be honored. And mm-hmm. I just, I think if if you choose that that's how you want a company to interact with you, that's how you want to be part of something, that's great. Mm-hmm. If you choose not to, that should be respected. And I don't know at some point if we'll get there or not. I was at a completely different thing, a lecture on on uh, socialism versus democracy, where we are in big data and how it's playing to governments. And, and the gentleman had this really interesting thesis that if you numb people with happiness through this big data and give them products, then you can go do things. So I won't get into the politics of that, but that actually really started scaring me a little bit. Yeah, and the- George Orwell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But in a different way, not the dystopian version. It's like being above ground in the light, but actually with the dystopian underpinnings. (laughs) So, (laughs) One last question before we let you go here. So I'm going to quote you. you. You said, step back and decide what are your motivations. We need to focus on what energizes us and get more of that in our days. So that's really, really great career advice for sure. So anything else that you wanted to add to that to build on Where that? Where did for, I say that? When for, did I say that? <laughs> uh, wow, you've been through Google. my social media profile. Yes, I have. Um, it's out there. <laughs> um, anything else in terms of just, just you know, to the, to someone coming out of school? Some, you know, obviously the Gen Z, the you know yeah. that population. I think remember your seventeen year olds like <laughs> Anne's daughter who were yeah. looking at careers. I think colleges first. <laughs> what I try to tell people in advice is twofold. Number one, relationships matter, and sometimes relationships matter more than skills, especially in a career level. It does matter how you interact with other people. And I think that actually leads to how we've ended up in this position of actually even talking about the subject is we've lost a lot of our relationship with ourselves, a lot of relationship and interaction with others and our relationship with nature. So that notion of seeing you're part of a larger context and that you may not feel like your actions may have an influence, but you are the only person who can, the only person's actions you can control are your own. So remember you are in relation to the rest of people around you, to the world and everything, and your actions do matter, not someone else's only. And I know that it sometimes doesn't feel that way, but if we all acted, that's how grassroots changes things. Well, I, I can't thank you enough, Anne, for being our guest today. We, we of course, are going to link up to this wonderful book on our show notes. Again, the book is called Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit. Anne Barr-Thompson is the author. It is published by Amacom. And again, we will have lots of links for you. And this is definitely required reading, in my opinion. I hope everyone listening found this engaging, insightful, as Anne and I have, and convincing, and most of all, useful. I would say this is a book that is a must-read for all the leaders out there, too, especially. A lot of wisdom. Thank you to my partner, Anne, without the E, for joining me on this episode. To our great production team at Resonate Recording, please share this episode with your network. And remember, when saving for a future where you, too, can do good, pay yourself first. Have a great week. 